Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 371 with Don Yeager. Don knows a thing or two about what makes teams great. He's talked to many of them in his day as a Sports Illustrated editor and studying many business and other organizations as to what makes the difference. So you'll learn, one, how every organization changes the world in some way. Two, key practices that can bring your team's why to life. And three, how great teams address dysfunction. So if you'd like to take a look at the show notes or the transcript or the links to albums we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F371. Now, here's Don's story. Don Yeager is a nationally acclaimed inspirational speaker, longtime associate editor of Sports Illustrated and author of over 30 books, 11 of which have become New York Times bestsellers. His messages focus on achieving greatness. He began his career at the San Antonio Light in Texas and also worked at the Dallas Morning News and the Florida Times Union in Jacksonville before going to work for Sports Illustrated. So thanks to Don for spending some time with us and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Don, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. I'm so grateful, Pete, to join you. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm so excited to dig into some of your wisdom. And uh, I got a real kick out of just the name of your company. My company is called Optimality. Yours is called Greatness Inc. So tell me, what does this word mean to you? What do you mean by it? And what do you find so inspiring about the concept of greatness? Oh, I love so. Actually, I, I chose greatness because I couldn't spell optimality. <laughs> I always have to spell it on the phone. It's I mostly do business as how to be awesome at your job for that reason. But uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I I love sharing a little bit of the story because it just it, 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 I'm so grateful to my father. But when I was graduating from college, leaving uh, for my first job, I'm there with my dad. We're in Indiana. I'm getting ready. To, my car's loaded up. I'm headed to, to Texas for that first job out of college. And and my father just standing there in the driveway says, you know, Don, because you've chosen journalism as your career, uh, you are going to end up in the presence of some extraordinary winners, some people who have achieved things that all of us would love to learn from. And you're going to ask them questions and it's going to be great. And you'll write the story and it'll be awesome. But I hope that somewhere on this journey, you'll stop and ask each one of these people something that will benefit you. Ask them a question that you can learn and grow from. And, you know, that was like dad wisdom that, you know, that sometimes you think is silly at 22. And then it, you know, later in life, you're going, wow, boy, am I so glad that he said that. And I took the wisdom. And so I began asking the question of uh, the winners and leaders and people of importance that I would study over the course of my time in journalism. If you could name one habit that allowed you to become what your opponent couldn't, what your, what, what even some of your teammates were unable to become, what would that habit be? And they became kind of the characteristics of greatness is what they were called. And, um, and I kept a series of notebooks just on the answers that these great winners are given. And, and then when I retired from SI a few years ago, I took an early retirement, uh, from sports illustrated. My, my first move was to grab those notebooks and start calculating out what answers do great winners give to that question. And it was interesting how none of the answers were sporting, right? They weren't about their physical gift. They weren't about their their knowledge of a game. Um, it was about the development of disciplines that um, that we can all learn from. And I thought that was really kind of cool that 
these weren't sports stories. These were lessons from great winners, just as you might want to learn a great lesson from a Navy SEAL or a mountain climber. Uh, you don't necessarily have to do those things to appreciate the lesson. That's what I was getting access to as well. Oh, well, that is really cool. And so you're being humble and modest a smidge here. And we talked earlier about the audience's 50-50 sports fans. So feel free to shamelessly name drop here a little bit. So you're talking about the tippy top of the great sort of famous legends in respective sports. So could you maybe orient us to, you know, just a few folks who you spoke with and they said something that really stuck with you? Sure. I mean, you know, we're talking about folks like Michael Jordan, right? I've worked with Michael for many years and a voracious competitor. He's one of those people that just loves to scrap, right? He loves to try. And there's just so much about him, uh, whether you like him or don't like him, that you should want to learn from, right? Um, and uh, for me, the lesson that he taught me most um, uh, most openly, and maybe the lesson that probably sticks with me even to this day was he talked about the idea of excuses and how, how many of us um, have found excuses every time we don't get what we want in our, in, in our uh, hopes to be something special. And, and, and we use those excuses uh, to keep us from being able to achieve something better. And he, used to, he said once to me, you know, Don, a loss is not a failure until you make an excuse. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, that's really powerful. Like this is a guy who uses the mental strength that comes to him from losing to help make him better. Pretty powerful stuff. Oh, it is good. Yeah. Many of your listeners might be fans of the movie, The Blind Side. Right. Um, I had a chance to write the book with Michael Orr, the player who was the centerpiece of that movie. And, um, you know, and there's Michael. I mean, this kid comes from nothing, right? Uh, one of 13 children to a drug addicted mom and uh, slept outside because she would be on binges and, and, and would lock him and his brothers and sisters out of their apartment, their, their, their housing project apartment. And, uh, and yet when he became successful, when he signed a contract worth millions of dollars, changes the trajectory of his life. Um, the place that he was the very next morning at 6.30 a.m., um, was the, was the, was the workout facility that he knew was the facility that had allowed him to get there, right. To get to the top. He was there working out again the day after he signs the contract. And the reason was because he is a complete believer that the second you start resting on your laurels and you get comfortable with what you've achieved, uh, somebody passes you and he didn't want to be that guy. So, um, pretty awesome to have the chance to rub elbows, go eye to eye with some of these folks and, um, and learn lessons from them. Oh, that is really cool. Yeah. And so you've also written many books and one of them is about great teams. And you mention things high performing organizations do differently. We love high performing over here. So can you share with us what are some of the main themes and findings there? Oh yeah. So when I retired from Sports Illustrated, when I took that early buyout 10 years ago, um, I began doing speaking engagements for uh, a number of companies. Um, one of those companies that hired me regularly was Microsoft. And, and one of their senior executives said, we love the discussion of individual high performance, but we want to know why some teams can win year in and year out. Why are some teams capable of being um, regularly relevant? And, uh, and so I went on a journey. I took five years to, uh, to, to, to research the next this next book, which was about great teams. 
just sitting down with the best businesses and the best sporting organizations in North America to talk about sustained excellence. And, um, and the number one answer that came up was that the best teams understand their why. They have a sense of purpose. They know who they're in service of. Uh, they know why it matters. Uh, they can, and they can actually, they don't just know it generically. They can put a face on who they service. And when you can do that, uh, your team shows up to work differently. And again, whether this is a sporting team or a business team, uh, they show up to work differently if they have that sense um, that who they're in service of um, and, and they can feel that person. Um, and that's, uh, that's a, it's a real driver. It's a fantastic conversation. I love doing it um, with audiences, but I loved writing it in that book as well. Now, when you talk about they show up differently, can you maybe paint a picture in terms of when you got a clear why, what that, you know, look, sounds, feels like versus when you've got maybe a fuzzy or a lack of why? Sure. I'll give you a perfect example. Um, one of the companies I studied was a uh, medical device company out of Minneapolis called Medtronic. Um, Medtronic makes devices that are implanted in people that keeps them alive. And uh, during one of my interviews with the longtime CEO of that company, uh, I was asking how the company grew from 10,000 employees to 40,000 employees. So, you know, right, um, as, uh, as a consultant, you know, you know what happens when, that, when a company grows that exponentially. The, the culture of the organization fades. Profit and loss seems to become the dominant theme in conversation. And yet this company was growing at those numbers and still remained one of America's great places to work. And I wanted to know how he did that. And he said, yeah, I'll tell you. I mean, we, there's a number of things we did, but one of the most important was that we began a, a conversation that occurred every year uh, at, our, at an annual company event where um, for one hour we would, let, we would take to the stage six families that are held together today because of Medtronic devices keeping one of them alive. And we would give the microphone to these families and let them talk to our employees. And he said, every year, there's some young woman who takes the mic and looks at the audience and says, thank you. Uh, because your device did everything you promised it would, my daddy walked me down the aisle this summer. Right? said, every year, some young man did the same thing. said, yeah, but because your device is awesome, my grandfather was with us at Thanksgiving and they told us he wouldn't be. And he said that at the end of that, they actually took the six families to the back of the room. They, they lined them up at tables and they let all these folks come back there and they autographed pictures just like they were rock stars. Mm -hmm. And those pictures hang all over the building at Medtronic, uh, buildings at Medtronic. And, and he said, the, the reason this is important is that those people are our why, right? It's not about profit. It's not shareholders. It's not, and, and yet we don't actually really sell to them. So at Medtronic, they don't sell mm -hmm. to families. They sell to doctors and hospitals. Right. He said, but, but to know our why, we had to find a way to get connected to it. And this event was how we connected. And they did it every year because they had turnover and they had, you know, they had, they, the employees needed to be reminded. But, but being connected, putting a face on the feel it moment that can occur from you, occur for you when someone looks at you and says, thank you, you let my daddy walk me down the aisle. 
it's unforgettable and it's game changing. And they show up to work differently because that's who they're in service of. They're not in service of some CEO or some manager or some bean counter. They're in service of a young woman who got to walk down the aisle. Mm-hmm. That's powerful and awesome. And so is it different six families each year? I mean, we got lots of customers. I imagine they can sort of keep yeah. bringing new faces. Different six families each year. That's really cool. So that is awesome. And so I, by the way, so I hope I'm okay with the 50% of your audience that's not a sports fan now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Very good. What percentage is crying right now? What was <laughs> while we were talking segmentation? But um, I'm tearing up a bit myself over here in all candor. But um, so that's huge. And I'm thinking the natural response is, okay, well, Don, I don't work for a cool company that's saving lives, extending lives. Our impact is maybe a little bit you know, more subtle or less viscerally big feeling like that's sort of not so much that someone's going to be alive to walk a daughter down the aisle or to be at Thanksgiving. So that's where I disagree. I think that the only way you can say that is what you're, if, if what you're arguing is you work at a company that offers no value to society, right? And my guess is all of us, if we really try to break it down, could argue that, that we, that we're engaged in and changing the world, right? Or we wouldn't, it's, I mean, in our own way. Um, and, and so how do we, how do we create those moments or what do those moments look like for us? And every one of them, I'm telling you, I've yet, um, I, I've yet Pete in the last two and a half years since I have been doing this presentation. And since we wrote that book, I've yet to encounter a company where when they give me 20 minutes of time, I can't walk them backwards into finding that young woman that stands on the front where it might look different, right? It might be, mm-hmm. it might be seen differently than that. It might not just be around your product. It might be about what you do corporately for your community, right? That wouldn't occur if you organizationally didn't come together and work together. Um, it might be the way that you interact with each other as teammates. You know, we, I, I own a company in Tallahassee. We have 18 employees, right? Not very big. You could argue we're not in the business of saving lives or doing anything else. We, 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 uh, part of the company is involved in public relations. The other part is, is my book writing and my speaking, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we don't, we're not, we're not saving lives. Um, but what we set out to do a couple of years ago is we actually challenged every employee in our company to name for me one thing that we could do for you collectively so that you knew we cared about you individually. And every two months, we take a Friday afternoon off and we go in service of one of the members of our team. Um, You know, uh, one of our guys, our IT guy, right? And by the way, anybody that's ever worked with IT guys knows that, um, first off, they can find jobs anywhere they want to find because right now everybody's in search of a good IT guy, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But secondly, you know, they're sometimes a little quirky, right? A little, a little difficult. <laughs> and so our IT guy said, you know what, I'll tell you. Um, and we all knew that his grandmother had passed away just a couple of months earlier. But he said, you know, my grandmother lived two amazing years at the end of her life at this unbelievable nursing home where they cared for her in ways that were so cool. And I want to do something for the nursing home. And so we took off an afternoon as a company and we went and we served meals to the entire staff of that nursing home. And in between meals, uh, they told us stories about his grandmother, right? 
And he told us stories about his grandmother. And we know him better because we are part of a we, we are part of an organization that feels each other, right? And in a zero unemployment world where he could find a job anywhere, I promise you, this guy doesn't want to go to work somewhere else. He doesn't want to show up different. He wants to show up here because he knows we care about him. Uh-huh. That's the choice. That's what this kind of conversation really has within an organization. Well, that's really cool. And so the question there is, you name one thing we could do for you. And so then one way you've implemented that is sort of every other month taking a day off. I guess mathematically, you know, I'm thinking if that's six days in a year yep. and 18 people at the company. So that's an expense. Yeah. It's not a cheap choice. But you know what? We have zero turnover within our organization, which is, you know, the, you, you know, the cost of turnover, right? Mm-hmm. We have zero turnover within our organization and we have high employee engagement. Um, they, I mean, we, we work, we work diligently at it and it's not something you do once a year. It's not something you do. It's just a got to be an ongoing part of the culture of the organization you're creating. Mm-hmm. And so I'm loving the particular applications of the why. So we're getting a face to who you're in service of, and that could be your customer, your end consumer, your colleagues, your community. And then you're sort of asking specifically what's something that we could do for you and then putting that service into action. What are some other practices that bring this why to life? You know, um, to that secondary piece about your community, how many of us work at organizations that regularly are uh, contributing to uh, charities within your within your community, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, awesome. But you know what? Do you really feel that? It's, it feels good to see, to read the newspaper that your company gave X dollars to something. What if instead of just giving X dollars to something, uh, we said, um, you know what? We want to meet somebody who's the beneficiary of what we get a chance to do here. And, and, and if that means that instead of just giving money to Toys for Tots, you're actually going together as a team to deliver gifts to a, to a family at Christmas, right? Those are the collected experiences that, that bond people together in ways that are really cool. Mm-hmm. There are the ways that teams come together and they're the ways that instead of just stroking a check, we're allowing the organization to benefit because of an effort we were already going to make. Now we get to feel it, right? We get to feel it. That's cool. I'd love to get your view then in terms of the components of the why. I mean, you can see it in practice by sort of engaging with those faces. I guess I'm curious, you spelled out some subcomponents who we're in service of, you know, why it matters. Are there any key questions that you suggest teams kind of reflect upon in order to zero in on the resonant why and to flesh it out all the more powerfully? In working on this exact program and after having worked with a number of teams, both in business and sports that, that, that have made kind of that sense of um, purpose, a centerpiece of who they are. Um, I actually sat down, I live in Tallahassee, Florida, and I, uh, uh, a professor at the Florida State University College of Business, who's really extraordinary in this space of team building, actually put some academic um, research work into helping me create a list of questions that you could ask your team if you wanted to, uh, if you wanted to try to get your 
sense of why, if you wanted to understand what do they think, why do they think we matter? Why do, because it's one thing for a, for a leader, right? For me as the CEO of the team or the president of the organization to say, here's why we matter. It's another if we sit and we go around the table and everybody answers the question. Sometimes they're uncomfortable answering it around the table. So we wrote out a series of questions. Um, I'll tell you, I, I wasn't intending to do this, but I would be glad to. Uh, Pete, I can either give you my email address now at the end, whatever you want. And anybody who's listening to this, if they put your name in the subject line, I'll send them those questions. Okay, cool. Well, could you maybe give us just a taste right now in terms of one or two of them? Well, I think so. The first big question is that what if you were asked, who are we in service of and why does it matter? It'd be, it's a, it's a fact. I did it within my own company, right? What, what do, when they go around the room and they answer that question, the, the variance that you get is really amazing because then you start to ask yourself, gosh, if they don't know who we're in service of, then man, it's my job. It's my job to do just like that CEO of Medtronic. It's my job to figure out how they, uh, how they get it. Right. And, and if I can't, help them get to that, get to an understanding of that question. But you have to start by finding out what they think. Um, and, and now, if you ask the question of 15 teammates and they all say the same thing, kudos. Seldom happens. But it starts by just getting there. What, why does what we do matter? What happens to this community if we go away? And these are really insightful questions. If they answer them well, you really do walk away with an understanding that, man, um, I've got work to do, but I, but you know where you're starting from as a team. Uh, if people are all over the place, wow, let's, let's put a, let's draw for ourselves, uh, a picture of the person that we're in service of. What does it look like? That's cool. And I'm curious in your particular instance, what were some of the range of responses you got? And then what do you do with that? in terms of it's like, oh, I think this is the right answer. Or how do you steer and navigate that? Well, what you do is you bring all the answers in, put them up on a big whiteboard, and then we start talking about them. And, you know, I'm not calling anybody out. I'm not, but I'm just, I'm fascinated by why we're not on the same page. And I'm okay with it, right? We don't have to all parrot each other, but it would be nice if collectively we believed this is our, this is the avatar of our, of who we are serving. And if we get a sense, so what we ultimately realize is that, um, you know, again, part of my, part of my business writes books, part of my business speaks, right. Or helps put me on stages. Part of my business builds virtual learning programs that I, that I get a chance to teach. Um, part of my business helps other people tell their story through public relations. But what we, so what we realized was our commonality was that we want to be world-class storytellers right? And we are in service of those who give us a chance to tell stories. And so we want to be the best storytellers we can be. And we and to do that, we have to be really good at what we do, but we also have to engage with people who have world-class stories to tell. Right. And so the further we got into that conversation, everybody, there's this, this sense of purpose around, wow, you're right, man, I've got, I'm, boy, anyway, people began to, to get this sense that um, they're, they're working in a special environment and you could argue that's partially my fault that they, that that wasn't 
patently evident just because they're working for me. But at the end of the day, um, everybody gets caught up in doing their own thing. And sometimes they forget about the value that the team gets to bring. That's awesome. Thank you. Well, so, you know, the book has a subtitle, The 16 Things High-Performing Organizations Do Differently. We've mostly talked about one, and I'm fine with that. But I'd love it if you could maybe also share, if that's the big one, is zeroing in on the why, are there any that you would say offer just a big bang for your buck in terms of a quick win? Or it's like, you know what? If you can just knock out this little annoying thing, it makes a huge difference. You know, the one that really stood out to me that kind of surprised me. So we have back-to-back chapters in the book and sessions in, in this program that I do where the great teams aspire, right? Aspire to have a, um, a strive to build camaraderie within the organization, right? That, that makes total sense. Everyone believes we should have camaraderie. And first off, it's important to define it, right? Camaraderie is an understanding and appreciation for each other. Mm-hmm. But then the second piece of that was, um, okay, camaraderie sounds cool, but it doesn't always happen. So what's the flip side of that, which is dysfunction. And if we know that dysfunction is real and it happens in any organization that's high performing, right? Any high performing organization has has dysfunction within it. So the big question is, how do we shorten the life cycle of the dysfunction? Mm -hmm. And it opens. And the biggest piece of that is opening by the great teams see dysfunction differently than most of the rest of us see it as something to close our, we put our hands over our ears or cup our eyes and let's, let's, see, let's, let's see no evil, hear no evil. Let's try to avoid this, right? The great ones address it openly and see it as actually a sign of passion. We possess people that, that have passion. So let's use that as a strength as opposed to a negative. And how do you manage dysfunction? The best teams do it they don't let it overtake the mission. And as a result, they are able to get back on track more quickly. All right. So you just take a bright light to, all right, what's dysfunctional and how do we get out of it quickly? And so that's what kind of your key questions. Any other prompts that make a big impact? You mean another characteristic? Oh, no. I mean, in terms of getting to the bottom of that dysfunction. Well, the key is that you have to have leaders who are willing to, um, to be uncomfortable. Because addressing dysfunction in an organization is an uncomfortable position. And if you know that we have two people within the team uh, who are regularly um, sniping at each other, right, that are regularly just taking backdoor shots at each other, talking about each other, you as the leader, you, someone, has to take control of the situation, pull those two people together and say, look, I get it. I don't need you to hang out but I need you to be respectful. What is it about her that you cannot respect? What is it about him that you cannot abide? Talk to me and we're going to talk this out and we're not leaving this room until we do. Or if we do, not all three of us will be leaving this room. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And you have to be willing to. So that willingness to take it on, which most people do not want to do because it's, it's nasty. It's messy. It's, it's uncomfortable. We're hoping it's just going to take care of itself, Don. <laughs> and it never does. It only gets worse, right? So don't be foolish. The best teams are not foolish. It's not about just shining the bright light. It's about literally engaging the conversation. All right. Well, tell me, Don, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Uh, no, I think the, uh, the only one of these other characteristics on high-performing teams that really stood out was the best teams have a mentoring um, culture within their organization, not a mentoring program, 
but a mentoring culture, right? It's that belief that those of us who might have been around a little longer are actively engaged in helping to raise up those who might not have been here as long to understand. Uh, and those who might be younger might be teaching those of us who are a little older uh, about ways to do things more efficiently. Um, but is it, it has to be a cultural value within those great teams um, that allows, that allows uh, mentoring to become a part of how you see each other. All right. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Uh, my favorite quote comes from a basketball, legendary basketball coach named John Wooden. And he used to love to say, make each day your masterpiece. And that fascinated me because it's such a simple quote, right? Um, make each day your masterpiece. It's five words, right? Uh, but it's the hardest advice someone can give you because it means that in order for today to be a masterpiece day, I have to prepare well. I have to actually show up well. I have to deliver on on commitments. I have to, in order to make today a masterpiece, it's a lot of work, but if I do it and I string a few of those together, I got a pretty good week. And so focus on today and make today a masterpiece. Really incredible. Mm -hmm. My favorite quote. And how about a favorite study or experiment or a bit of research? Probably this research on great teams, because I'm always you know, we can all, we, we all see great teams and we know what they look like when we, when we work for one or we participate, maybe we played on one, but what is it about the magic and what do those who have been engaged in them say? And that was probably my favorite thing. Mm -hmm. And how about a favorite book? So it's funny because this one usually surprises people when I get asked that, but, um, I don't read much fiction, but I had the opportunity a few years ago, I was invited to be to be part of a of a two person book signing in Charlotte, North Carolina, and the other person was Nicholas Sparks, mm -hmm. and he wrote a book called The Notebook that he gave to me when he and I talked about my mother who suffered Alzheimer's, and um, and it's uh, I still read it at least once a year um, because it gets it allows me to think about my mom, which is pretty awesome. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite tool, something you use that helps you be awesome at your job? Probably my favorite tool is uh, I'm an incessant like thinker. Like I'm always thinking of like some crazy idea or something. And so I have a, um, a quick recording tool uh, on my phone that allows me to to quickly capture and share crazy ideas, which I have often in the middle of the night that are are divided up between uh, the, the the folks that get to work with me and um, and we are regularly. Uh, trying to trying to grow what we do and expand our influence, but um, this it's a anyway. It's just it's a it's a not, neat way for me to be able to do it. No matter what's happening, no matter where I'm driving or where I'm traveling, I can share things really quickly. And what's the name of it? Um, I was afraid you were going to ask me that as you as I was telling you about it, and because I wasn't prepared for that question, and I don't have my phone in here, so I don't know the name. I literally have it as a single button on my phone, so. I am embarrassed to acknowledge that I don't know it. Well, no worries. If you could just let me know and I'll, I'll include that in the show notes. Awesome. We'll get that going. I use OmniFocus myself for that kind of thing. And uh, it is awesome. Like I'll find I have like a hundred plus ideas just randomly surfaced. <laughs> Anything and everything from, oh, do they have nannies on uh, resorts? <laughs> yeah. Find such a resort. That'd be fun. You know, so yeah, it's cool. Uh, great. And how about a favorite habit? A uh, favorite habit is 
I love closing each day with, uh, trying to, um, uh, I'm a, I'm a man of faith. So I love that. I, a big piece of closing each day for me is a little reading, um, uh, of the Bible. And, uh, and, and I've got a, um, got a, got a pretty good prayer sequence that I try to go through every night to make sure I'm, I'm covering, uh, covering that piece of my life and, and make, and reminding myself how important it is. Well, you've used two of my favorite words next to each other, prayer and sequence. So if you're able to disclose, what are, are some of the components there? Well, I just, I, I begin by sharing my gratefulness, right? And, um, and recognizing how fortunate I am for all that I've been blessed with. Um, I, then I try to focus on those I know to be in need and, you know, I try to think about um, things I hope or pray for for them and and then I, uh, and, and then I always close with talking about my, my family and, or, and, uh, and it's interesting because I, I use the word talking about, cause that's kind of the way I look at it. You know I mean? I'm not, mm-hmm. So that's the way I round it out. Beautiful. Thank you. And tell me, is there a particular nugget you share in your speeches or books that really seems to connect, resonate, get quoted back to you, retweeted, et cetera? Yeah, the, it's, that phrase that I, I think I used earlier, but I, when we were talking about some of the folks that get a chance to work with, I mean, Michael Jordan, when he was sharing this lesson to me and he, you know, saying a loss is not a failure with that until you make an excuse that comes back up often um, because a lot of people are, that's really impactful. Like, you know what? Even the great ones lose, but the, the great ones know how to keep losing in perspective and they learn, learn how to learn something from losing and that's a that's a real game changer for many people when they when they hear it, because a lot of times we don't associate losing with some of those folks. Right. Right. And Don, tell me if folks want to learn more, or get in touch. Where would you point them? Uh, so my website is donyager.com, D-O-N-Y-A-E-G-E-R.com. Um, I'm active in uh, on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. Um, and so uh, I regularly respond. In fact, spend a good piece of this morning kind of responding to, uh, to different questions and requests that were on those four mediums. And, uh, so that's, those are probably the easiest place for me. Oh, sure. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? You know, I, I think that the challenge, when I thought about the model of what you're building here, Pete, and the, the question, the reason I brought up the Michael Jordan quote twice is because I think that's, the differentiator between the good and the great, especially at work, is a willingness to not go looking for an excuse every time something doesn't go your way. And that if they're committed to uh, stopping the vicious cycle of excuses that, that seems to wave over all the rest of us, um, if you can stop making excuses when things don't go your way, I think you'll find a, a degree of, of opportunity that's off the charts. Beautiful. Well, Don, thank you so much for sharing this. Your compassion and just caringness shines right through and it's powerful and it's a real treat. So I wish you tons of luck with your books and your speaking and your companies living out the why and just all you're up to. Pete, thank you very much, buddy. I really love the way Don made it so simple in terms of when you're really clear on who you're in service of and why that matters, you show up in a totally different way that that's full of life and you just make it happen with so much more goodness and zest in that mix. And so I'm thinking about my why here and who I'm in service of, and and that's you. Professionals who dig learning and growing and being all you can be, 
And why does that matter? Well, my favorite response on a survey item I asked was someone said, when I'm awesome at my job, I love my job. I truly believe that awesomeness matters. And sometimes that awesome at your job-ness is a matter of life or death, as I mentioned in the Veterans Day episode. But other times it's not a kind of full-blown actual biological death, but it could be that maybe half of your waking life, you know, those work hours are fundamentally enjoyable and life-giving or just a miserable slog that you have to kind of muscle through and deal with. And so I am all about having that work experience be more of the former, less of the latter, and that matters to me. That's a lot, a lot of importance to me, the the why there. So I hope you're getting that from the show. And the feedback is always appreciated to ensure that we're delivering all the more of that. Email me anytime, pete at awesomeatyourjob.com or hit me up on LinkedIn. We got a fun little code to distinguish you from non-listeners, which is any lyric to any boy band song, which is kind of fun. You can find me on LinkedIn, drop a, I don't want to be your fool in this game for two or whatever. And then I know it's you, a listener, as opposed to kind of all the other requests that come my way. Or just say, hey, Pete, I dig the podcast. You don't want to do that. So that way, either way, it's clear. LinkedIn or email Pete at awesomeatyourjob.com. Feedback handy to make sure that you're getting more of the awesome so that work is all the more delightful for you. Again, you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, the links, items we've referenced. It's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep371. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push the subscribe button. The next couple episodes surrounding Thanksgiving are kind of little specials. One, I'm going to talk about showing appreciation and kind of referencing back some of the things we've done there. terms of showing how you're thankful for folks and the difference that makes. And then on Black Friday, I like to share some of my favorite things. Oprah can do it, so why not me? You can see some of the things that I think are really cool. So maybe worth purchasing for friends, family, loved ones as you're doing some holiday shopping and taking advantage of all the discounts and deals available. That's the next two episodes. And then we are coming back with typical interviews. We got Karen Wickery, who is talking about taking the work out of networking, some tips for introverts and more. Until next time, peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.